Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Aaron Weinacht with the Russian and Eurasian Studies section of the New Books Network. And today we're talking to uh, Dr. John McCannon, who has written a, a really interesting book about the Russian artist uh, Nicholas Rurik. So thanks for being with us here today, John. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, one, uh, maybe since I... This first time I've interviewed you, uh, maybe introduce yourself to the listeners a bit. Maybe explain, you know, what course your education took, how you got interested in Russian history, and and so on. Sure. Well, I think I probably uh, took a pretty typical track for Russian studies people who are of a certain age. I'm in my mid-50s and was in college in the late 80s, high school in the early 80s, and so was interested in the Soviet Union as the the big geopolitical thing. And uh, when I went to college, I, I, I... Majored in both history and Russian studies, and I, I think probably a lot of uh, a lot of students at that time was uh, remarkably interested in what was going on in the Soviet Union. Uh, I came from a military family and had pretty much decided that career path was not for me, but I did at first have in mind possibly, you know, uh, State Department work, intelligence work, or what have you. But partway through college, I just became interested in Russia for its own sake, uh, interested in the culture, interested in the language, uh, and uh, also became interested in scholarship for its own sake. And so I decided instead of, uh, you know, going policy, I decided to go graduate school instead and uh, ended up at the University of Chicago um, in the early 90s. And I worked with Sheila Fitzpatrick and Richard Helley there. And yeah, and uh, and I, um, if there's a through line to, I guess, my my research since graduate school all the way up till now, and it's it's been a while now, uh, it's been the history of exploration. Uh, I did my dissertation and first book on um, basically polar exploration during the Stalinist 30s. And I've written quite a lot about Arctic work as well. And uh, and my work on Rarick uh, emerged um, kind of as an offshoot of my interest in exploration more generally. Um, yeah. And I will say it is a departure. I remember when I finally hit upon the idea of like leaving the Stalinist era and uh, all of that and moving into something very different. I remember both of my advisors kind of giving me these quizzical looks why are you departing from our from our normal field, and why are you taking up with this uh, seemingly crazy artist explorer guy? And uh, it made sense to me, and I, I think eventually I made it make sense to my advisors as well. They were very supportive of me, even after I kind of went uh, on a very very different path in terms of this research project. Well, I think you know. Rurik is one of those characters who kind of sells himself. At least uh, he certainly did, uh, uh, in my case anyway. So I was thinking that that said, maybe by way of orienting listeners who may or may not have, have heard of Rurik at all, uh, I thought maybe maybe it might be good. Just could you start off by giving folks a rough sketch of who Rurik was, maybe kind of a rough rough chronology of his life kind of kind of contextualize who this guy was a little bit yeah i'll do my best i mean i will say and if you've read the book you you, you i'm sure you'll agree this is not someone who lends himself well to an elevator talk kind of pitch no, because he had no a, it, it, it does not <laughs> yeah so it's a very complex life and it covers a lot of different fields and I, the way i like to think about it and i think i describe him in my introduction as someone whose fame is kind of compartmentalized in other words you're likely to have heard of something connected to Rarick, even if you've never heard the name, whether or not you're a Russian specialist or someone who's, you know, uh, outside the field. 
So um, first and foremost, he uh, enjoyed a long career as one of uh, pre-revolutionary Russia's premier artists. And I'll say a little bit more about kind of what he did. And then after the revolution, he enjoyed or endured, maybe it's another way of putting it, uh, a long second career in exile uh, where he continued his artistic work, but also became interested in exploring Asia. And he also became involved in peace activism uh, in a very public sense. And another aspect of his life involved uh, behind the scenes political adventuring that verged on espionage. So it's a lot. So in the in, in his early career, so he was born in the 1870s, uh, was educated in the 1890s, and he began his career as an artist uh, kind of in the, the, the very late 1890s and the 1900s. And uh, he emerged as Russia's premier painter of scenes from Russia's distant past, uh, the, medieval, the medieval era, but even earlier, Kievan and prehistoric Russia. And I know, I think I first encountered Rarick without knowing it. Uh, he's got one particular painting, uh, guests from overseas or visitors from overseas. And you, if you're in Russian history, you've almost seen this painting uh, in the way that everybody sees George Washington crossing the Delaware. Uh, it's a picture of uh, Viking traders sailing down Russian and Ukrainian rivers to uh, Byzantium. And it's used uh, really widely to illustrate uh, textbooks uh, of you know ancient Russian history that, I mean, pretty much any Russian kindergartner would encounter this painting uh, through grade school on up. Um, and I remember, I, I, I remember just, you know, through you know, graduate school having flagged that image. It's just something you see. I didn't really think much about the artist. Um, he designed for uh, the Russian ballet or the Ballet Russe with Sergei Diaghilev. Uh, and he was also part of the uh, World of Art Society that was associated with Diaghilev as well. And he gained his greatest fame uh, working on uh, set designs and costume designs for the opera Prince Igor uh, and the ballet uh, that was associated with that. And uh, he's best known uh, to aficionados of music and art history as the co-creator of the Rite of Spring with Igor Stravinsky. Uh, the two of them collaborated on creating the ballet. Uh, Rarick provided the sets and costumes uh, for the infamous Paris premiere of the Rite in 1913. Uh, and I would say that prior to the revolution, that was uh, what made that. What, that's what gained him his greatest fame. Uh, he also was the director of one of Russia's largest uh, schools of artistic education, the School for the Imperial Society of the Encouragement of the Arts, and uh, one of his students was Mark Chagall and uh, many others besides. And I, by the time he got to about 1910, up through World War One and the Revolution. Uh, he was a major, major figure in the Russian art field. It was kind of uh, on the, the, the peak of his success. Uh, at the same time, he also pursued two other passions, uh, which all of which would converge later on and help shape his career once he left Russia. He was a gifted semi-professional archaeologist. One of his uh, artistic and intellectual and academic interests was the Stone Age. Um, and over time, he came to idealize the Stone Age as kind of the, you know, the, the cradle of a more authentic existence that he kind of yearned for, uh, you know, during his own era of depressing modernity. Um, and also, he and his wife were among the many uh, turn-of-the-century Europeans, and certainly one of the many turn-of-the-century Russians, who became interested in uh, occultism, spiritualism, theosophy, um, 
at first they dabbled in uh, this, like a lot of other people. Uh, it actually would be unusual to find someone in the Russian inter- uh, cultural community from the turn of the century not interested, at least briefly, in uh, these various uh, uh, strains of the occult. But over time, they became really deeply committed to <clears throat> seances. Um, you know, Helena, um, Rarick's wife herself, became uh, known as quite an accomplished medium. Uh, and by about the 1910s, uh, they were actually deeply committed to theosophical strains of new age occultism. And we can maybe talk more about what theosophy is, but it's sort of the, uh, the wellspring of most modern new age movements today, uh, kind of the, uh, the, the incorporation of elements of Hinduism and Buddhism uh, into kind of a more modern mishmash of, uh, of, of uh, spiritual beliefs. So that where this all would have taken Rarick, uh, if the if the world war and the revolutions hadn't happened, is hard to say. But basically, uh, of course, the revolutions, or the, the the war and the revolutions, kind of swept all this success and this prestige and this influence away. And um, Rarick found himself uh, deeply interested or deeply involved in the artistic politics of the uh, of 1917 between the uh, February and October revolutions. But he also felt physically ill, and he came to deeply despise Lenin and the Bolsheviks. So in uh, the at the end of 1917, getting into 1918, he and his family went into emigration. Uh, they drifted for a couple of years uh, through Scandinavia and England until they found themselves by 1920 in New York. And at this point, Rarick and his wife and their two sons, who were reaching adulthood by the time that they left the country, um, Rarick and his wife reinvented themselves in a rather profound way. Um, Rarick continued to paint, and he wanted to establish himself as a working artist in America. But he also, along with his wife, uh, ended up – and this is probably the effect psychologically and personally of the shock of the revolution, the shock of exile, of the shock of the loss of everything they held dear. Um, they went from being deeply committed to occult beliefs to essentially – deciding that they were, in fact, occult leaders, uh, agents of destiny. And they really seemed to have like adopted a literal belief uh, that they themselves were going to bring about the New Age. Uh, they established a uh, theosophically derived school of occultism uh, that they called Agni Yoga, or the, uh, the, the system of living ethics. And they were lucky in their early uh, months in the United States to find some followers uh, who were both wealthy and um, – I guess, gullible. And so they actually were able to find a number of supporters in America who, one, um, funded the creation of a museum uh, and uh, and, and a cultural center in Manhattan that's Actually, the building itself still stands today on the Upper West Side. Um, this is the, the, the what, we, what would become the uh, the master building uh, and the the Master Institute of United Arts that Rarick ran as a school and as a museum dedicated to himself. And these uh, the people who established this uh, museum were also his essentially his spiritual followers. Uh, so there was a wealthy financier and his wife and a circle of Russian emigres uh, who supported him and uh, basically became uh, his inner circle. Um, and, um, you know, would support him for about the next 15 years. And, uh, in addition to that, um, Rarick, um, began, um, 
uh, a campaign to uh, try to get a treaty signed to protect art in times of war. Uh, and uh, this kind of peace activism actually gained him, especially by the late 20s and the 30s, uh, an immense international reputation. He was nominated several times for the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, he gained the attention of all kinds of celebrities from H.G. Wells and George Bernard Shaw to Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, and uh, he also, uh, while he was building up this kind of occult peacenik sort of following in the States, uh, he gained the attention of an agronomist by the name of Henry Wallace, who by the time we get to the early 30s would end up becoming uh, Franklin Roosevelt's agriculture secretary and uh, and uh, later vice president. So um, he was rather entrepreneurial in building this following for himself. Um, and at the same time, uh, he devised uh, what he and his wife would call the Great Plan, and this is a this was a scheme uh, that uh, again is outlandish to think about it, and it's, it's it's astounding to think that one person could think you could actually pull this off. But he managed to convince a number of people to fund him and support him in doing this. He and his wife, uh, while speaking publicly about peace and art and the understanding of uh, peoples. Um, he also intended to see if he could bring about the formation of a pan-Buddhist state in uh, Siberia, Tibet, and basically as much of Central Asia as he could kind of bring together. Uh, that literally would be a new country, and the establishment of this new country would bring about the new age, and he and his wife would be the theocrats of this new state. And he collaborated with a number of different uh, elements in the Russian emigration to do this. Um, and he would flip-flop politically back and forth between left and right, uh, trying to get supporters to bring this about. Um, and of course, none of this worked. It all failed. But he ended up taking two very famous, highly publicized trips to Asia. Um, these were overtly all about painting uh, scenes from Asia, doing anthropological and mythological research in, uh, in Central Asia. But the real purpose behind these trips uh, was, in fact, to try to bring about uh, this new pan-Buddhist state, uh, this great plan. Um, and what's remarkable is that in for each of these trips, he got well, you know, famous and uh, well-endowed people to uh, fund these trips. So he went uh, in the mid twenties to Central Asia and Tibet, and this is a trip that was financed by. Um, Basically, the, 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 it was financed by the supporters that he had gathered in New York, and uh, it did, in fact, actually travel from India up into Little Tibet uh, and into Tibet and Mongolia. And um, during that trip, uh, Rarick managed to uh, kind of uh, scheme in a kind of tentative way with the Soviet regime. Um, and he ended up making it to Tibet. He never made it to Lhasa, but he was hoping to meet the Dalai Lama. And... Uh, see if he could check out the idea of uh, allying with him for these geopolitical schemes. Um, that trip failed in its mission, but he came back a celebrity. Uh, he was welcomed by the mayor of New York. He met Franklin Roosevelt. He met the president. Uh, and uh, this uh, trip ended right around the same time that this uh, the, the kind of this wave of Tibetophilia was uh, kind of uh, very, very active in the States. Uh, this kind of corresponds about the time when, uh, uh, you know, Gibran was coming out with the prophet. Uh, you know, James Hilton was writing uh, Lost to Rise, in which, of course, popularized the whole concept of Shangri-La. And so Tibet so Rara kind of rode this wave and um, kind of, again, became for a while this, this very, very, very big celebrity. 
His museum was built uh, in uh, Manhattan at this point, uh, and he tried again for another expedition to Asia in the 1930s, and he was boosted in this by the fact that by the early 1930s, um, Henry Wallace, uh, now a member of Roosevelt's cabinet, was one of his biggest supporters, and he actually used uh, U.S. federal government funding uh, to attach Rarick and his son to a Department of Agriculture expedition to go to uh, Asia in 1934-1935. That expedition crashed and burned in scandal. Um, It involves a big scandal that Roosevelt barely managed to keep contained uh, as as, as Henry Wallace uh, came very close to uh, plunging the entire cabinet into uh, controversy. And that was pretty much the end of Rarick's career in America. Um, After that, he ended up living the rest of his life in India. Now, in the meantime, he had all these other uh, impacts. The the peace treaty that he had advocated for during the 20s and 30s in the States ended up uh, being signed and it came into creation in the 1930s. It is actually the basis of all the UNESCO uh, treaties that uh, now safeguard art and architecture in times of war. Um, and uh, in the meantime, he had all kinds of other impacts on American uh, cultural life during the, the during the late 20s and the early 1930s. And uh, there are all these fascinating details about people he influenced during the time. Um, and through Wallace, one one way that everybody encounters Rarick on, uh, on on an everyday basis without knowing about it is that the uh, the U.S. dollar bill was redesigned in the mid 1930s, and uh, it was at that point that the Great Seal of the United States, with the uh, with the pyramid and the eye, which of course has existed as the Great Seal of the state since the beginning of the country, it was not on the currency till the mid 1930s. Um, and we know from the Secretary of the Treasury at the time, Morgenthau, that he got the idea to put the Great Seal on the dollar bill through Henry Wallace, who was influenced in the idea almost certainly by Rarick. So in a certain sense, uh, we all actually just by the minute of, by pulling out your wallet or your purse every day, uh, you got a little bit of Rarick in your life right there. Um, and there's just so much more. So this is a man most people have never heard of if they're not a Russian studies person. Uh, and even Russian studies people have got kind of maybe, a, again, an, a, an oddly segmented understanding of who he is. They might have heard of one thing or the other. Um, but he's someone who's kind of in this zealot fashion, almost kind of the hinges of so many things that went on during the 20s and 30s. So it's a remarkable story. Um, it... Um, there's a lot. I know when I first started working on the book, uh, I had was looking for the next big thing after doing my book on Stalinist polar exploration, and and that book involved you know writing about an agency that employed thousands of people and it launched dozens of expeditions and it governed a territory. The agency I wrote about governed a territory of two million square miles, and I got that book done pretty quickly. And I thought, oh, this Rarick project, it's one guy, two expeditions. I'll be done with this in a snap. <laughs> how long can it take? <laughs> yeah, how long can it take? And uh, if I could revisit my younger self, I'm not sure I would tell myself not to do the book, but I would certainly warn myself that it would be a longer haul, uh, that uh, finishing the book ended up kind of turning to my own personal Himalaya. Uh, I think near the end, I did feel like I was actually like ascending Everest without oxygen in bed myself. <laughs> so that's... That's that's so that's a rambling introduction to Rarick. Um, you know, I, I love talking about him. He's an infinitely interesting, fascinating, infuriating person. Uh, spent a lot of time in his company writing the book. Uh, I, I I still have the bruises on my ankles from all the times I was kicked under the table by my wife when I would go on about Rarick. And the other <laughs> cool, yeah, the other cool thing you need to know about him. And oh wait, there's one more thing. So you get the picture. Boy. You know, I um, 
I was going to ask you this at the end of our talk, but now I think actually I should ask you more towards the beginning. And that is that it's, uh, I had the kind of rare experience when I read the book of like, I knew more about Rurik obviously when I got to the end of the book than I did when I started. But at the same time, I'm not sure I actually understand him any better than I did at the, at the beginning. And you, you talk a bit in there about like, what does it mean to say that somebody believes something, you know, or, or the, like the sincerity, because when, when you, just for the, the audience here, when you, when you read about Rurik's life, you're really left not knowing like when he's getting backers and so on for his, his ventures, like, is he some kind of, is he a con artist? Is he like a, you know, a really, uh, uh, you know, a sincere person, you know, and, and I mean, you can be sincere and wrong, right? You know, I, I don't know. Is that, is that something you could comment on? Like, how do we, how do we think about this guy in terms of his belief in his own views of the school of yoga and the great plan, as you call it? Right. No, I mean, this is, I, I it's a question I wrestled with for a long time and I still wrestle with. And I, 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 I try to be as frank as I can in the introduction and the conclusion to the book is that, we're never going to know. Uh, they're, 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 I will say this: this is the most humbling academic project I've ever involved myself in because you kind of like really probe the limits of what you can know as a historian or as a biographer. And um, I think that's the that's the uh, I, I guess that, that that's something we that's something we all wrestle with. I just felt like yeah, you really bump up against that very very hard here. So. Um, the way I tend to think about this, and I was actually influenced in this quite a lot by reading the uh, really some really good work about other modern spiritual leaders, uh, you know, who's you know, basically uh, who's who's whose development of uh, religious movements, or again, not to be not to sound pejorative, but cults or sects or whatever, um, have you know taken place in real time in the modern era, easily observed and easily documented. And uh, so, for example, Lawrence Wright's work on uh, L. Ron Hubbard, you know, Going Clear, which is about Scientology. It's, it's, it's a really, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a great book. Um, or um, John Krakauer talking about uh, radical Mormons and the history of Mormonism, where you've got a, a, a new religious faith that, you know, developed um, in full view, and how do you deal with people like Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, who uh, you know are, are clearly sincere, but you also see a new religious uh, trend being born in the sight of the modern lens? And I think what I what I took from some of that work uh, and other and other research is that modern spiritual visionaries um, can be, and this is now the kind of the, the phrasing I use, they can be strategically sincere and tactically duplicitous. In that uh, they can truly believe in their rhetoric, and yes, they're willing to manipulate followers or bend the truth uh, in certain ways to achieve their larger spiritual gain uh, aim in, in which they sincerely believe. And I, I, I came to believe that was the case about the rarics because I, it, it, it's certainly it's certainly the case that um, I was presented with the idea that, okay, these, these, these are people who are claiming things I do not believe. I mean, I, I personally uh, don't, don't believe that they had spiritual powers, that they could actually speak with uh, with unseen masters and uh, they could tell the future or anything like that. I mean, I, it's odd to have to make that qualification because many people write about Rarick, certainly in Russia, but even in the West, um, kind of on the presumption that, oh, there's nothing unusual about the fact that these people are claiming you know, spiritual insights from beyond. Uh, 
And uh, many of the people who write about Rarex are themselves uh, either fellow travelers with this kind of new age spirituality, or they themselves are adherent to it. Um, and it, it's odd to read those books, you know, some of which are some of the, the, the only really complete biographies we have in English. A couple of them really are written by people who are clearly admirers of and followers of Rarex spirituality. And you get this very odd like this disembodied feels like, why are you not asking more questions about some very, very strange stuff? On the other hand, I think there's, there, there's been a, there's, there's a, there's a backlash uh, in the scholarly world about Rarick uh, to see him as simply either as insane or as a con man. And I think the answer is that it can be all of the above. I, there's no doubt that Rarick and his wife manipulated uh, their followers, and there, there, in some ways, there's there's there, there's some emotional manipulation that's really, really kind of almost painful or cringy to read about. But I do believe that they thought what they believed was true, um, and I, I I can't be sure of that. Uh, I can you can certainly catch them. There are moments where you catch them in specific lies or lies of omission or commission to their followers. But I do believe that they they believe I do believe that they believe that they were the agents of destiny in this way. That takes a lot of uh I guess self-faith, um, to say the least. Uh, I I note in my introduction that a number of people who write about spiritual figures of this type try to like peg these uh, views to different personality disorders or psychological phenomena, um, and so uh, in terms of people believing that they actually you know are in contact with spiritual masters or that they actually can speak with the dead, uh, there are a number of physiological explanations uh, that uh, go into that. But in terms of like believing that you yourself are literally an agent of destiny. Um, there may have been some kind of narcissistic personality disorder that would allow the rarics to believe what they believed about themselves and yet and also feel justified because of that in shading the truth a bit or again you know manipulating in specific ways the folks that they relied on and who supported them um but it's Again, it, 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 it's, it's, it, it's, it's like writing a book where you feel like you've got constantly shifting quicksand underneath you, uh, where you're not sure how far can I believe what I think that they believe uh, and how much am I going to torture myself about that. So I came, I came fairly early to believe just the sheer – I will say that Lawrence Wright writing about L. Ron Hubbard you know, talks about this is a you – know, that was a man you know, who sustained you know, a worldview consistently over a long period of time and wrote voluminously about it in such a way that if you're faking, you're kind of overdoing the job. Like in other words, uh, you're going above and beyond what you need to do to sustain the illusion for cynical purposes. And I kind of came to believe the same about the rarics. It's like you, you, I've, 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 I've read the diaries, I've read the the works of Agni Yoga, and uh, you know, it, it, you know, taking a break and kind of giving my after clearing my head, thinking about this. You don't write that much, right? Uh, without at least being kind of committed to its in I guess what you consider to be the internal truth of it. Um, so I, but, but it, but it is, it is hard because I, we, again, among scholars, and of course, I think one of the other dangers about being a biographer, and this is the only biography I've written as opposed to doing other historical work is that your colleagues, uh, are likely to think that you have some identification with the subject. And of course that is, that is actually a thing you've got to guard against. Uh, and I mean, I write about rare cause I find him fascinating. I do think there are some ways that he has been, uh, kind of like 
understood poorly and sometimes understood unfairly, but I by no means identify with him or like him. Uh, I, I'm, you know, again, I think he's a remarkably interesting person who has, you know, was remarkably talented in some ways, but dealing with, I you always had to kind of get the, 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 the talk over with other colleagues. No, I'm not one. Actually, every time I went to go do work in an archive, the archivist, especially at places like Hyde Park, the FDR library where I did some work, the first thing the person, the first thing the archivist asked me is like, you're not one of them, are you? <laughs> right? You're not, you're not a rare guy. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Um, but you always have to get over that presumption. You know, people would ask me, what do you believe? What do you think about Rarick? But there's this, there's, there's the backlash. Is he just crazy? Well, crazy is kind of a vague term and not very clinical. Um, you know, that would, and if he were crazy, that would make him not responsible for his actions. Um, I think he would, he might've been, I, I, he definitely had an outsized personality with some eccentric aspects to it. Is he a con man? Yes, but not only that, I think is how I would answer that question. Well, it kind of speaks to the, uh, I think what I think anyway is kind of a broader reality of doing, I guess, what you might call intellectual history, where the temptation is always to try and it's always to try and take a whole set of ideas and make them make sense. Whereas in reality, all of us hold beliefs that from an outside perspective might look to somebody like they're self-contradictory or something like that, where if we're all capable of doing that, you know, there's, there's, that's no less true for Rurik than it is for, for us. You know, that's something I've noticed over the years anyway. Oh, that, no, that, that's absolutely true. And I think, you know, um, I, I will say working on the subject forced me to think a lot about how we operate as humans, the kind of like mix of rationality and irrationality. We all have a little bit of both. Um, I, I will say one of the other things that I ended up wrestling with writing this book, though, is you know, you, you can go back and forth. Um, Rarick, um, everything, Rarick is very easy to kind of like characterize as, you know, to caricature as, uh, you know, it's kooky or weird or duplicitous. And uh, it would be very easy to kind of create a, a, a Cliff's Notes version of it that makes him look like an absolute madman. Um on the other hand, a lot of the things that he believed and a lot of things he did actually grow out of a larger context. So I always found myself like presenting to presenting about him in conferences or trying to, you know, trying to describe him to other scholars is, well, yes, he had these, you know, seemingly strange occult views, but lots of people in Russia did. Or, you know, his political back and forth, and we can maybe talk a bit more about that because another thing that makes him very hard to trace is that he was anti-Soviet, then pro-Soviet then anti-Soviet again, and then pro-Soviet again. And uh, that's the kind of thing that would incline people to say, well, he, clearly he was just a cynical con artist. And the fact of the matter is you look at the Russian emigre experience, those shifts of attitude back and forth were not that uncommon. So I would try to say, well, Rarick actually fits into this larger trend or this larger context. And then I go, but no, wait, he's still weird. <laughs> even, even by the standards of these trends. Okay, of Kandinsky was interested in the occult. You know, uh, other people were interested in the occult, but Rarick lived and breathed the occult. And, you know, it might be, you know, I might, someone might read a horoscope, you know, at breakfast. Rarick thought he was going to create the new age. There's a difference, right? So I find myself like apologizing for and then backtracking and then apologizing and backtracking. And so it's an interesting, it's an interesting dilemma because you say we, we, we all contain these multitudes. Rarick just may have contained more more of them yeah maybe yeah. Uh, yeah. a complicated concentrate or something exactly. like that exactly yes yeah 
since you bring up the background context that makes him look, you know, perhaps less weird as you were saying that I was thinking, so on the one hand, like say in the, the theosophy movement, you've got somebody like Helena Blavatsky who maybe has a little more name recognition, but then of course on the, you know, on the question of like all of his trips into Central Asia, you know, you go back to like Nicholas Perzhevalsky and the, the earlier attempts to get into Tibet would maybe would now be a good time to talk about some of that background context by way of contextualizing Rurik a little later. Because, I mean, uh, I, I, this is one of these things where, you, again, what Rurik did, again, as astounding and eye-poppingly, I want to say just like <laughs> ambitious and arrogant and astounding as it was, grows out of this larger context. I mean, there were, there was a long tradition of, you know, going back to the Tsarist era, as you say, Przewalski, uh, and, and, uh, and, uh, and getting a little bit further along, I mean, people like, uh, again, a whole number of other archaeologists and anthropologists who saw the possibility of advancing Russia's imperial mission into Central and East Asia um, by way of trying to forge ties with, uh, with Tibet, um, and again, just to kind of get a sense of the, the get a sense of the region. Uh, many of the Buddhists of Central Asia and the Himalayas are Tibetan Buddhists. So the notion of trying to get uh, win the allegiance of uh, the Tibetan uh, theocracy, um, you know, to ally with it or to gain influence in it, uh, would be a way of gaining kind of the religious um, allegiance of not just Tibetans but many of the other Mongol Turkic peoples of Central Asia. And this was a this was a longstanding uh, idea among Russian Orientalists uh, going back from again the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. Um, and again, some of these people, as Rarick as a very young boy growing up in St. Petersburg, uh, was enthralled by tales of, you know, kind of, the, again, this, this whole Orientalist movement. Um, his father was quite a well-connected uh, notary Republican, Republican Petersburg. And so Rarick, even as a boy, met some of the major Orientalists of, uh, of Russia. And so he kind of, as a, as a young man, was already kind of aware of this eastward thrust, and he was fascinated by Asia. And so as a working artist, uh, he became acquainted with some of the these uh, kind of like uh, one of my a Russian colleague, Alexander Andreev, who's written quite well about Rarik and someone whose research I've actually uh, interacted with quite a lot, uh, talks about the, kind of a, a Tibet lobby in Petersburg, you know, in the turn of the century. And these are Russian scholars uh, and Russian explorers, uh, Russian orientalists, some of whom were, and this is another phrase, he uses uh, Andreev uses neo Buddhist or Theosopha Buddhist kind of like they they kind of internalized some of the some of their subject material you know not all of them but if if I'm a Buddhologist uh, it might be that I start to incorporate some of that worldview um, and and there was this group that did actually. Like seek out the they wanted to advocate the idea that Russia should or the Russian government should try to seek ties with uh, with Tibet uh, and be more Buddhist friendly as a way of bringing uh, gaining again greater allegiance and greater political influence over the all these regions that uh, you know Britain and Russia struggled with during their great game their diplomatic competition over the region from the you know mid eighteen hundreds all the way up into the early nineteen hundreds so. Rarick knew about this. He actually knew quite a lot of the people involved in this. And I think his his own great plan 
uh, grew out of this. He also met some of the Tibetans who uh, were perfectly eager to try to gain Russian influence. Uh, the monk Agvan Dorjiev uh, is kind of a famous figure in the history of Buddhism in Russia. Uh, he was actually a tutor to the Dalai Lama, and he was a great activist in the late 1800s and early 1900s, all the way up to the Stalin era when he finally was imprisoned and died. Uh, but uh, Dorjiev actually um, lobbied for um, the idea that uh, – the Tsar, and then later the Soviet government, although he failed at convincing the Soviet government uh, to follow through on this, that by being friendly to Buddhism, uh, the Tsar could realize, or the Russia could realize its imperial ambitions and gain more influence in Asia. Rarick met him uh, during the uh, turn of the century and was interested, he, as, he, as he basically inclined more towards New Age spirituality, he became kind of a, you know, a, a, a a neo-Buddhist in this way. And so the scheme, as absurd and weird as it might seem to us that, oh, I'm going to establish a pan-Buddhist state, um, as, as, as weird as that sounds, and as weird as it should sound to us, actually grew out of the context. There were other people who floated ideas like this. Rarick was not the only one. And during the churn of the Civil War, to jump ahead a bit, Right. Uh, obviously, most of the East, Siberia, uh, East Siberia, uh, you know, all, all, all of all of all of that, all of that Eastern periphery, was very much in play. Uh, there were many, many schemes uh, in the very late teens and the early 1920s, um, where somebody might be able to make a play, uh, establish some kind of state um, that was religiously focused and had the. Uh, following of various uh you know uh various tibetan buddhists uh and uh whether it was going to be pro-soviet or anti-soviet depended on who you were so rarick's adventuring uh in in any kind of the 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 kind of the brass that's involved with him wanting to insert himself in this doesn't grow out of nothing again there there was a long-standing uh idea of like union between russia and tibet or cooperation between russia and tibet uh and kind of trying to take advantage of or stimulate religious beliefs by way of accomplishing a political goal. And uh, Rarick kind of definitely taps into that. And, and by the way, and his brother, uh, his brother during the Civil War actually fought under one of the most infamous, uh, you know, uh, one of the most infamous parties who attempted this, uh, Baron von Ungern-Sternberg, uh, who, again, is not necessarily a household name, but this is known as often the Mad Baron. This is a, a, a Russian uh, warlord uh, who convinced himself or at least told people that he was the reincarnation of uh, Genghis Khan, uh, or at least, or, or figures like that. I mean, and he also, again, in in, in during the Russian Civil War, he briefly did uh, conquer uh, Mongolia and uh, the, the, at least Ulaanbaatar, the capital, and he briefly set up kind of this theocratic state, uh, whereby he was trying to manipulate. And again, I don't know enough about Ungern Sternberg. There's some very good work done about him um, uh, by, uh, by 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 uh, Willard Sunderland, actually a really good biography, uh, The Baron's Cloak, talking about what a strange person he was. I don't know Ungern Sternberg's level of sincerity, but this is another person trying to use local Asian religious beliefs to accomplish a political goal and to gain political allegiance. And again, Rarick's brother was his quartermaster general. And so it's just kind of, so, um, and that now Ungern Sternberg ended up coming to a bad end. He was executed and uh, killed by the Soviets. But um, nonetheless, the idea of 
pulling this idea off and kind of in a way I, I based the title of my book on the Rudyard Kipling version of this, you know, the artist who would be king, the man who would be king, the idea of like Westerners um, exploiting or stimulating um, a religious impulse to gain a political claim. This is actually a fairly longstanding thing. Um, and it's the, so as weird as the idea sounds, there were other people who tried it out. Rarick was personally connected with other folks who were involved in other attempts to do this. And so it would not seem absolutely beyond his reason that he might be able to put himself in this game. You know, you used the word brass earlier, and I don't know, that it's very evocative because you just think about this period, there's just so many people who exhibit that. You know, you've got all the way from Blavatsky and Perzhevalsky, we mentioned, to somebody like Sven Hayden, or even, you know, the the, the British explorers who we haven't mentioned, the guy who... Um, that the guy who was supposed to be going to Afghanistan to get horses and ended up sneaking into Tibet and bringing back all those goats. Um, <laughs> right. Oh, I, I'm trying to think of his, yeah. uh, ah, I can't think of he's, his name, but he's escaping me at the moment. So, but we have Oral Stein, we have Sven Hedden, we've got Roy Chapman, Andrews. It's, you know, you've got some of these folks are actually quite swashbuckling in the way they approach their Orientalism. I mean, it is kind of an age of Indiana Jones and, uh, you know, Rarick is kind of a button-down wannabe Indiana Jones in a certain sense, uh, and uh, and and I will say so you, you mentioned Blavatsky, and I, this is you know Rarick, Rarick and his wife um, were dedicated theosophists, and they venerated Blavatsky. Uh, you know, obviously they're they're a generation later; they never met her or anything like that. Although Yelena made her name in occultist circles by. Uh, you know, creating the first Russian translation of the secret doctrine by Blavatsky. And there's a bit of an irony. Blavatsky, of course, being Russian, wrote the uh, secret doctrine, her masterwork, while she was abroad. And it actually took somebody else to translate the work into Russian for her. Um, so in a way, yes, Rarick and his wife really felt that they were fulfilling uh, Blavatsky's Great teachings about, like you know, sort of like the destiny of the world. Uh, you know, from you know, re, re, re recovering the Atlantean uh, inheritance that uh, had you know seeded humanity from ages ages ago, um, and actually they came to see themselves as the only true interpreters of her teachings. Then, so basically, their Agni Yoga was meant to be the the truest distillation of theosophical Blavatskyan beliefs. You know, what, one of the cool things that I think emerges from that set of reflections then is that, like, uh, it's kind of a general point about history, really, which is that things always make more sense when you put them in context. And if even somebody like Rurik makes more sense when we do that, that should tell us something about the power of context, right? <laughs> that That is true. I mean, now that said, I will say, I, I you know, uh, it, it's, it's still eye-poppingly strange story. And uh, I, and, and, you know, recovering that context is actually uh, quite, it, it's, it, it's, it's, it's quite a task. I mean, I, 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 I I mentioned before this is a it was a humbling experience writing this book because I came to realize just how much of that context just I could not recover or you know the gaps that we have but yeah you're absolutely right. I mean there's a point where even the most stunning story generally grows out of something um, and uh, in, in, to Rarick and his wife for sure uh, and again I'm not trying to say that I want to step inside their heads too much right but to them this all made sense they they, they eat and again the wild transformations the, the idea that they believe not only do we believe these things not only do we believe in occultism we are the vessels through which our occult beliefs will be made manifest it's like making yourself almost like a Buddhist John the Baptist 
Um, and the and and the shifts, like I said, when Rarick left the uh, when he left uh, the country, uh, his the the first iteration of the Great Plan was actually uh, meant to be a way of recovering parts of Asia from Soviet domination. So it was an anti-Soviet version of the Great Plan. But by the time he travels to Asia in the mid twenties. Uh, Lenin has died. Uh, things seem to have changed. And his most famous attempt to make the Great Plan happen, his expedition of 1925 to 1928, where he actually did make it to Mongolia and Tibet, um, he actually had a site for it to Moscow. And at that point, it became a pro-Soviet version of the Great Plan, where he was trying to encourage the Soviet Union uh, to be uh, tolerant of Buddhism. Uh, and uh, and therefore, win the allegiance of Tibet and uh, these the 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 the, the, the uh, larger part of Central Asia than the Soviet Union governed, and that somehow he believed he could talk Moscow into letting him do this and essentially uh, you know be the interlocutor between the Soviets and the Tibetans to create a larger Buddhist state. Um, What's astounding is actually he was listened to. You know, he actually did in Moscow in 1920 during during this trip. Uh, he actually spoke with Lunacharsky. He spoke with uh, the secret police. Um, he spoke with Chicharin, the foreign minister. Uh, they eventually decided that this guy is strange. We're not sure what he's up to. We'll give him a little bit of support and we'll see what he manages to do in Tibet. That all made sense to the Rericks, even though it's a complete 180 from the political views they had had just a half decade before. And then when that venture failed, they go anti-Soviet again, and their second trip in the 1930s was meant to be an anti-Soviet uh, version of trying to win a Buddhist state uh, in defiance of the Soviet Union. When that failed, they became pro-Soviet again. And to an outsider, again, without the context, this just seems like either chaos or con artistry. But there's an there's an internal logic, at least as far as if you can if you can get into the context of the Rarick's lives and the way they think, it all makes sense. Uh, yet, at least from their point. <clears throat> I guess on the other hand, that's the same era in which yeah, Bogdanov was trying to create the new Soviet man by giving himself blood transfusions, right? So there's there's strange things going on all over, right? Yeah, even in the. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely true. I mean, I, I mean, I will say the history of Russian occultism or the history of Russian alternative beliefs uh, and the fact that they flourish as much during the Soviet era as they do is – I mean, there, there is a very good scholarship on this. I mean, I, 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 was, I was privileged to tap into a lot of research that other people were doing on, on these topics, uh, and it, it, it is astounding. The, the trick is, of course, I will say trying to be – being a scholarly, responsible academic and not plunging down the wormhole of all these different things can be a bit of a balancing act. But yeah, there's just so much. I uh, so you used a great phrase earlier uh, um, about you know just reminding us how incredibly strange a lot of this is, and I think for the the listeners, uh, I really think you ought to tell the story about the Guru letters because this one really stands out as one of the truly strangest episodes in the book, and it's one that uh, that 
you know, even people who are maybe pretty well versed in American history might not have ever heard of. And so I think we've we've uh, we've got about 15 or so minutes left. And so I want to give you plenty of time to talk about okay. that. Well, well, this is the thing. I mean, it, it, on one hand, this, it, a lot of what Rarick does seems like a, an implausible fantasy story. And yet what what I find remarkable is that he, again, he found people to support him in these ventures. And so, again, with his first expedition, he had these, you know, again, this the, the, you know, a very, very wealthy financier. Um, and uh, he gained all this. Uh, he was very entrepreneurial in gaining that kind of support. Now, where he ends up really intersecting with American political history in a big way, other than the fact that he had this fame, you can you can troll the New York Times for his name from the late twenties and early thirties, and you know you'll you'll come up with him all come up with all kinds of references to him, um, and the museum that was built in his name attracted a whole lot of other people as well. But because he became so intimately involved in the underside of the FDR administration, I mean, you have this really remarkable uh, intersection with. Uh, the highest level of American politics. So he managed before Roosevelt was elected, um, Henry Wallace, uh, who would become his agriculture secretary and then you know, secretary of commerce and vice president during the long Roosevelt era. Uh, Henry Wallace had already become attracted to uh, Rarick's spirituality uh, at the very end of the twenties and uh, became a follower of Rarick in kind of a more casual sense. And at that point, point, uh, Rarick comes back from Asia, and he's looking now around for the next way to try to achieve his great plan. Um, and as it turns out, once uh, the in, in, in that it, once Roosevelt is elected uh, and uh, Henry Wallace is uh, in the cabinet, uh, Rarick now has a very very influential uh, very influential uh, connection in uh, in the White House, and. So it was Wallace who, on one hand, certainly elevated Rarick's peace activism to its highest level. It was Wallace that uh, basically badgered Roosevelt and uh, the Secretary of State uh, to adopt Rarick's treaty. And it was also Wallace that got him uh, involved in uh, his second expedition, 1934, 1935, to you know go to Asia and do what he was going to do in, in, in overtly uh, – Wallace sent Rarick and his son George, who was a very gifted linguist and uh, you know uh, Orientalist, to go ad, quote advise, and I'm putting the advise in quotation marks, a Department of Agriculture expedition that was you know looking around for drought resistant grasses for to help solve the Dust Bowl crisis. Now, in under under that. Wallace was very much interested in uh, Rarick's uh, great plan. He knew quite a lot about it, and he supported it in ways that were, let's just say, politically reckless, and uh, ultimately ended up nearly, nearly ruining his political career. And uh, certainly made made it clear that it, it ended up like making ended up causing him to be bounced from the vice presidency to a lesser point in the cabinet later on in the 1940s. And that's an entire other story. But um, so Roosevelt. Knew of Rarick through Wallace. Uh, Roosevelt was this interesting Russian artist who had gone to Tibet, and uh, basically, Roosevelt may or may not have met Rarick after his first expedition in the late twenties, because when Rarick came back from his first Asian visit, uh, he came back to New York, and Roosevelt was the governor of the state at that point. And if he did not meet Rarick at that point, his uh, his 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 aides did, um, and. In, in, in Rarick had an in, sorry Roosevelt had kind of an, an interest in Tibet and uh, Asia as well, kind of a casual interest in the region. 
Um, and his mother, Sarah, was actually a bit of a dabbler in alternative spiritualities. And so um, Rarick was kind of receptive to Rarick as an interesting person and uh, we, we ended up basically uh, supporting the peace activism that uh, Rarick was interested in. Um, what this did, though, is it kind of gave the Rarick's the impression they had more of an in with Roosevelt than they really did. And so while Rarick himself was act, was in Asia, in uh, China, uh, Manchuria, and Mongolia, trying to it, it kind of basically explore those regions and behind the scenes uh, try to uh, you know achieve his geopolitical goals of rallying uh, support from the Japanese and white Russian emigres in Manchuria against the Soviet Union. By the way, Roosevelt knew nothing about this, um, and. Wallace knew more about it than he uh, than you know, was well, he he knew about it and was supporting it more than was again responsible. Um, Yelena Rarick, who at this point was in India, the Rarick's had they, they they'd established a residence for themselves in the foothills of the Himalayas in India, and that's where uh, where Rarick's wife was. Rarick's wife, kind of feeling that some of their plans were starting to fall apart, and obviously, if we have the time, we, we in the time we have, we don't have time to go into the details about why Rarick's uh, visit to uh, Asia was kind of falling apart. Uh, Rarick was not achieving the success he wanted to. Uh, the Japanese uh, came to suspect him of being a spy. Uh, the white Russian emigres he was trying to appeal to got wind of some of his earlier pro-Soviet statements and also thought he was a spy. Um, and journalistic coverage of some of these uh, scandals was starting to come to light in the States, and Wallace was starting to panic about what he had set loose in Asia. To try to remedy this, Yelena Rarick uh, ends up trying to intervene directly with Roosevelt. Uh, and so she sends him a series of uh, letters that um, – Basically, uh, formed this very, very strange exchange um, that uh, basically she's just in trying to basically give Roosevelt advice and uh, essentially uh, trying to uh, trying to basically like say that I my emissary is going to uh, guide your presidency and all that. And because these letters were transferred through uh, Rarick supporters, uh, Roosevelt never wrote. Roosevelt never actually wrote those. Uh, never actually wrote any kind of reply. Um, his follower, uh, Rarick's followers, were interested in kind of relaying back to Elena the idea that Roosevelt was responding positively to this. So we have that body of letters that is just a strange, strange pocket uh, in uh, in correspondence. And I will note that Rarick followers seem to have the idea that Rarick, that Roosevelt was interacting with Elena Rarick in this kind of casual, sure, I will take your spiritual advice kind of way when. Uh, Rarick, so Roosevelt clearly was not. Um, now, uh, the other body of letters that is very, very big here, uh, you, you refer to the Dear Guru letters. These are the letters that yeah, Wallace himself uh, wrote over a number of years to the Rarick's. Um, and those also are this great oddity in American political life that I think I will note that more and more uh, – Biographers of Roosevelt even are now beginning to include this strange episode in the history, uh, in their histories of the New Deal or the histories of FDR. Uh, and I know uh, certainly 
uh, any biographer of Wallace, and, and this goes back to you know uh, the 70s and 80s, biographers of Wallace have always had to include this very strange uh, episode in Wallace's life uh, in their biographies. And that research still continues. I've actually been in contact with a number of Wallace scholars recently since uh, my book came out, uh, kind of, yeah, kind of like triangulating our understandings of what's going on here. So so actually, so Wallace wrote these letters to the Rarics, um, and there are quite a lot of them. And most of them have been proven to be authentic. And they're both in the Wallace uh, president, uh, Wall- Wallace Vice Presidential Library there in Hyde Park. They're, 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 they're widely, they're widely, uh, they're widely held now, uh, at least in facsimile. And they are bizarre. They literally talk about like, dear guru, um, you know, uh, and they're seeking uh, spiritual advice, uh, you know, uh, and uh, basically, uh, Wallace essentially puts himself at the spiritual service of the Rarex and pledges to do everything he can to make the great plan happen. I mean, they are truly eye-popping, bizarre letters. Um, and so when and they're and they're written basically over a period of late from the, the basically the very late 20s up to about 1934, 1935. Now Wallace definitively broke with Rarick in 1935 because Rarick's uh, misadventures in Asia threatened to completely derail his political career. Um, And uh, so all of a sudden, Wallace cuts Rarick off completely, sticks the IRS on him, uh, makes it it impossible for the Rarick's ever to return to the United States. But what he didn't realize was that Rarick's followers had kept this body of letters, these Dear Guru letters. They were kind of sitting there like a ticking time bomb. Having dispensed with having dispensed with Rarick in 1935, you know Wallace basically ex- ex- essentially exiles him from the country, cuts off all ties with them, uh, takes whatever tongue lashing he got from Roosevelt. And I have to say, I would love to have been a fly on the wall when Roosevelt said, "Yeah." When Roosevelt finally got was like, "Okay, Henry, you let this crazy Russian loose in Asia," you know, and press coverage got a little bit intense about it. Uh, what on earth were you thinking? Um, but Wallace makes it through that. Uh, it, would be, it would be politically embarrassing for Roosevelt to publish Wallace uh, publicly. Wallace had a very strong following in the Democratic Party. He couldn't be gotten rid of. And Wallace felt that he had escaped the, 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 the taint of Rarick. Um, we fast forward a bit. Um, you know, you, you get, you know, that's 1935. We get the 36 election. Um, and then in 1940, um, at that point, uh, Roosevelt chooses Wallace to be his vice president. He's kind of like bumped up. Shortly after the Democratic National Convention, um, the uh, the Republicans had managed to get a hold of these letters. Why? Because Rarick's angry followers still in the States, very miffed at what they saw as Wallace's betrayal, um, had these letters and they decided to give them to the Republican Party to use as they would. And so uh, just after uh, just after Henry Wallace is actually uh, appointed vice president uh, or nominated vice president at the Democratic National Convention in this very big public splashy way, uh, Roosevelt's aides, uh, including Harry Hopkins, get wind of the fact that the Republicans had these letters and they might publish the letters. Like and, and again, these in, in, in insanely embarrassing. Please advise me. Tell me what signs are in the sky for me today. Uh, just these 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 embarrassingly like spiritually sodden letters are going to go public. And uh, 
you know, there's no way to remove Henry. Henry, there's no there's no way to remove Henry Wallace from the ticket. Uh, the rules don't permit it. It would be politically embarrassing, and uh, FDR and his aides are kind of in, in a pickle as to what to do. And uh, will Wendell Wilkie run with these letters or not in 1940? Happily for FDR, uh, he happened to know that Wendell Wilkie was having an affair. And uh, kind of we and there's a, and there there's a tape recording of this. It's remarkable to listen. They said, "Well, we can't do it ourselves, but maybe someone needs to let the Republicans know that somebody could let it loose, kind of further down our line that uh, Wendell Wilkie has been messing around." And so uh, basically, both sides kind of drew down the letters. Yeah. So so in 1940, nothing happens. And so uh, basically, uh, Wallace remains vice president and he serves uh, the next term as the vice president of the U.S. Um, it's not a surprise, though, in 1944 that uh, the minute uh, Roosevelt gets the chance to drop him, he drops him to secretary of commerce and puts Harry Truman in his place. Now, I, I will say one of the great what ifs that I talk about in the book is if Henry uh, – Henry Wallace might have been dropped as vice president in 1944 for other reasons. He was not, he's not the best fit for that job. Uh, and there were plenty of people who were gunning for him in 1944 to be dropped. But I will say, had he not been mixed up with Rarick, it is, it is possible he might still have been the vice president in 1944, which meant he, he would have been president in 1945 when Roosevelt passed away with a much different Cold War emerging. Uh, as a result of this. Um, so it may very well be that, uh, you know, Rarick uh, prevented uh, by kind of sort of just by, by virtue of these letters, uh, Henry Wallace from becoming president. Now, these letters finally did become public in 1947 during the lead up to the 1948 election. Uh, finally, uh, the red baiting journalist, Westbrook Pegler, uh, who's quite famous for uh, basically a muckraking at that point, um, when Henry Wallace ran as a third party candidate in 1948, uh, Westbrook Pegler did actually start publishing the letters. And uh, this torpedoed uh, what little chance uh, Wallace had of, I think, having a big influence on the election. I mean, no one thought that Wallace was going to become president. But uh, I kind of argue that uh, the effect of the Dear Guru letters, which again, you can read the election coverage of 1948 and Rarick is all over that. Ironically, Rarick was dead by that point. He had passed away in 1947. So he wasn't even alive for his big debut on the stage politically, uh, where his letters uh, to, or the, the, the Wallace's letters to him are becoming, forming like the, the, the controversial fodder for the 1948 election, where uh, Pegler hounds Wallace in the press and then finally shows up uh, at the nominating convention when uh, the Progressive Party actually officially nominated Wallace and uh, Wallace's vice presidential candidate. Um, and he, Wallace gets called out on this publicly. And it's a very big, splashy episode uh, that's widely covered. H.L. Mencken was there. Uh, so, uh, you know, the kind of the great lion of, you know, satirical journalism kind of writes all about this as well. And Wallace's vote total, projected vote total, dropped precipitously after the revelation of the Dear Guru letters. Um, and uh, I, I do the math uh, in uh, in my kind of the, 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 the section where I discuss this in my book, where uh, Wallace was uh, projected to receive X number of votes, and he fell shy of that before the scandal broke, and he basically dropped over a million votes. Now that and the thing is, when you look at the electoral college at the time, um, it wouldn't have taken that many votes in a couple of key states to make Thomas Dewey president. 
uh, at that point, because Wallace was actually projected to be spoiler uh, for Truman in a number of key states. And if you do the math, um, without the Dear Guru scandal, uh, there's not a bad chance that uh, Thomas Dewey would have actually squeaked out with that Coral College win. Uh, had it not been for the scandal caused by these letters that Wallace was foolish enough to have put down on paper and sent to the Rarics and his followers. Well, of course, and then we start envisioning the early Cold War without give them hell, Harry. And I mean, the what ifs are incredible. Yeah. Well, there is, and especially since because uh, it's pretty much known that, uh, I, 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 I should know, I mean, I will say a lot of the revelations about the espionage going on, uh, you know, our, 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 our revelations in the 90s about you know, who was spying on whom. Um, the I think the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Treasury that a President Wallace would have picked, both those guys are known to have been Soviet agents. So I mean, there's there's that as well. There's no Berlin blockade. There's no NATO. There's yeah, it's it's in a very very different world at that point. So that's the way that Rarick, someone no one has necessarily heard of as a household name here in the states, uh, in a way. Uh, maybe through inaction uh, or passively, and changing the world pretty profoundly. Well, John, I, I, uh, we're kind of at the end of our hour, and uh, you know we could probably get another hour easily out of this, but I think maybe, um, maybe I ought to just wrap up here by saying: Is there any, is there any like specific aspect of the book? beyond just telling people to go read it and see all the other fascinating detail about Rurik, is there any other aspect of the book that we haven't really touched on at all that you'd like to take a few minutes and discuss? Well, I would say, and I, I, we've talked a lot about political scandal, we've talked about geopolitics, and all those things make this a fascinating story. I, I do want to make a point that uh, anyone listening, we, have, we haven't really said much about his actual art. Um, and his visual style is unique. Uh, now, I'm not an art historian. Uh, so in a way, I'm kind of liberated to be able to say that there are some really interesting things in his art. He's got a unique style. I kind of put it in the same category as artists that don't fit into a particular ism all that well and don't fit comfortably into the kind of the 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 the, the kind of the art history intro flow from impressionism to post-impressionism to the avant-garde. He's kind of caught in this catch pocket of symbolism and turn of the century uh, trends that art historians tend to like to kind of brush over uh, on their way going from Van Gogh to Picasso. And uh, now I, I think art especially in the West, art historians are not all that terribly fond of his art because they don't get, first of all, there aren't a lot of Russians featured prominently in Western accounts of art history. I mean, you've got the Kandinsky, Chagall, Malievich, and that's pretty much what you get uh, in our, our general overarching story of art history. So a lot of Russians just aren't there to begin with, but a lot of what Western art historians seem is too colorful, too splashy. Now, not being an art historian, I don't really have to care about whether or not my taste uh, influences someone's perception of my scholarly expertise. I think that's a problem art historians wrestle with. If you like the wrong artist, that might call your credentials into question. Um, it, it, I think anyone who's listening to this, um, if my rambling hasn't put them off, uh, but uh, you should just basically Google Rarick, uh, and there are a number of really good online collections of his art. Uh, and it goes from these really kind of rhapsodic, uh, evocative scenes of uh, primeval Russia, uh, some of them, some of which are quite beautiful uh, and eye-catching, um, to his later works that involve all these, you know, scenes from Asia, beautiful mountainscapes, very eye-popping 
uh, images of Tibetan gods and Asian demons and, uh, you know, pilgrims and gurus in the East, they're worth looking at. Uh, they may not be to a connoisseur's taste, but uh I, I will say in Russia, they're remarkably well-loved. And one of my favorite experiences when I would go visit uh, collections of Rarick's work in, say, the Russian Museum in Petersburg or the Tretyakov in Moscow or whatever, um, it'd be kind of fun to watch. I, I would notice like uh, uh, like school field trips. You get a bunch of like Russian middle schoolers or, you know, uh, like high schoolers. And, you know, they're going through the the more respectable artists and these kids are bored out of their skulls and the docent is droning on about Repin or Benoit or some of these other, you know, more, again, sort of more conventional Russian painters. And then the kids would enter the rare galleries and they'd be like, Klaus, Zdorova, it's so cool. This is great. And uh, so I would encourage listeners to check out the art. Uh, I like some of it. Some of it is a little bit maybe flashy uh, or, uh, you know, what have you, but uh, it's, it, it's a, he's got a unique style. And that brings me, I guess, the final thought I would kind of express is like I, when I spent years working on Rarick and kind of living with him in my head um, and thinking about him all the time, <laughs> there are some infuriating uh, aggravating things about Rarick. Uh, I, you know, I mean, uh, but, um, as an artist, uh, there are some, again, maybe overly splashy, uh, overly flashy pieces of art that are a little bit, you know, you can kind of roll your eyes out or whatever, but there's also this endearing idealism in a lot of his art. And I will say this Rarick, even as a person, as much as I find him manipulative, duplicitous, maybe a little bit off his rocker, um, he did believe in something. Uh, he did. He did believe in his better moments of you know, kind of a a world where uh, you know people lived in unity and strove towards a greater ideal. I mean, I can't say I approve of the way he tried to go about achieving his idealism. Uh, I will note that there is in his later years he got a bit cranky and sometimes a little bit. Uh, you know, Russophile, xenophobic, and sometimes uh, the less pleasant strain of the Rarik movement in Russia today tends to kind of veer in that direction. But there's also a kind of a lovely universalism in his worldview that if you can kind of detach that from the occultist uh, extravagance and uh, kind of his egotism and his outsized ambition is kind of appealing. And you find that in some of his work. Uh, and so I would encourage people to take a look at some of his paintings. Uh, and at the very least, uh, they're going to be like nothing else you're likely to see in, uh, in your average gallery. Well, maybe I should wrap this up then too by saying not only go take a look at Rurik's paintings, but you should read the book too, because really we've, We've only scratched the surface of Rurik here, and I kind of expected that that's about how far we could get in an hour. So uh, I think maybe we better uh, wrap it up there, John. So thanks very much for uh, uh, talking to me about the book here for a bit. This is uh, quite enjoyable. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, and again, I'm, I appreciate your indulging my rambling because, again, it's it's a story that, it, that again, it, it, it lends itself to a lot of long storytelling. So, yes, I, I, I appreciate the shout out. Thank you so much. Yeah, you bet. No, this is exactly the kind of subject matter that makes history an interesting place to be. So uh, we'll wrap her up there. Thank you. Okay, thank you.